The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. This is our end-of-year show featuring a couple of our favorite book segments from 2022. Later in the hour, Bad Mexicans. That's what the revolutionaries of 1910 were called as they fought on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border against the robber barons and their political allies. UCLA historian Kelly Little Hernandez tells that story, which is the subject of her new book with that title. But first, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Ellie Mistal will explain in a minute. Our Constitution is not good. It urgently needs to be reimagined if we want justice and equality for all. That's what Ellie Mistal says in his new book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. He's the nation's justice correspondent. He's a fellow at the Type Media Center and a frequent guest on MSNBC. He's a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School, and he's also great on Twitter. Ellie Mistal, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me back. Well, let's talk today about the Fifth Amendment. As everybody knows, the Fifth Amendment says the government can't make you incriminate yourself. But there's a second part of the Fifth Amendment that's not so well known. It says the government can't take away your property unless, unless what? Unless they give you just compensation, right? And that, that is, that is the, that is the, that's the top of the pyramid question. Like that's where the fight is. The government has a clear, unquestionable right to take your property. It's called the right of eminent domain. Every sovereign nation has it. It probably goes back to, you know, I made, I think I make the joke in the book. It probably goes back to like, you know, the village caveman chief, like <laughs> taking the cave from this other guy because they needed the cave to store the food. Like you can go back probably to the beginning of human civilization to understand some version of the of the government's theory for eminent domain. So so my question is, what does this have to do with black people? <laughs> well, it does because well, we'll put like this, John, that the government can take property is unquestionable. Who are the government going to take the property from? That's where we have some fun. Right. And it turns out that more often than not, the government is going to take property from people who are poor, from people who are politically unconnected, from people who are powerless. That's the property they're going to go get because in part of this just compensation rule, you can pay less for property from people who are poor, unconnected, not powerful, don't have a lot to begin with. You can get that property on the cheap for in a lot of situations. Also, because those people cannot organize to fight and defend themselves and defend their kind of property rights against you, against you, the government in court, as effectively as rich folks, right? And so, what we've seen throughout history is the government, the American government, constantly kind of going after the property of poor folks, minorities, and in fact, not justly compensating them um, for, for their land, but cheaply compensating them, shall we say, for their land. Well, the fights over eminent domain recently have been fought by libertarian forces on the right. For them, of course, government is the problem and private property is the solution. And liberals usually support the government in these fights because the government is supposed to be acting on behalf of the public. But who is this public? Yeah, so this is where I end up 
agreeing with Republicans a little bit, which oh, is no. super uncomfortable for me because you said it exactly right. Yes, the general liberal position is that eminent domain is a good power for the government to have because when the government takes the property, it's going to do useful public things with the property, right? It's going to take the property so it can build a hospital or a library or a public space. It's going to take the economic uh, vitality of the property and preserve it as a historical site, for instance. Maybe it's going to take some, maybe you've got a lot of property that's going to take a little bit of your land to put up windmills or solar panels. All of these useful things is what the government is what we think of as liberals of the government doing when it takes your property. In practice, in practice, what happens more often than not is that the government takes your property and then gives it to private investors on the cheap under some nebulous argument of economic development or redevelopment. So this power of eminent domain that should be used to build hospitals and wind farms is in fact used to build like baseball stadiums and basketball arenas, right? It's the government taking the property in, you know, let's say uh, in, a, in, a, in an urban environment, giving it to a rich white sports owner on the cheap so they can build a billion dollar palace for their toy sports team and not share the money, by the way, back with, back with the government, back with the state, back with the people whose property got took. And that, that's just one example. There, there are lots of, you know, the stadium example is the most obvious one, but there are lots of like allegedly public purpose things that the government will take property for that actually end up in the pockets of private investors. This all kind of crescendoed with the major Supreme Court case called Kilo versus City of New London. That's where uh, the, city, the state of Connecticut basically took an entire development zone and gave it to some economic developers for, for re revitalization or whatever. It was just a cash grab for these private investors and, and the people whose property was, ta was taken, they went to court, including one Suzette Kilo who just had a house that she didn't want to give up in New London, Connecticut. And they lost five to four with Stephen Breyer writing the majority opinion, defending the government's use of eminent domain and all that kind of stuff. And Clarence Thomas writing the dissent, and this is like the one you could go through the annals of American history and not find many places where I agree with Clarence Thomas over Stephen Breyer. But this is this is the one. This is <laughs> okay. like I think Clarence Thomas had the better of that argument because what Thomas said was that public use cannot be whatever the government says it is that day. It's got to mean something more tangible than whatever the government thinks it is, because too often the governments will say it's public use when what they really mean is they're going to get some money from private investors. And I agree with Thomas, kind of, ew, I know, it's hard. I can see the pain on your face. <laughs> So your piece for the nation opens with a fascinating example. It's, it's not from the 1950s, it's from the 1850s. And the public purpose was a great one. The creation of the greatest of all American urban parks, Central Park in New York City. We are so happy that we have a Central Park in New York City. What does this have to do with black people? There was an entire village, an entire community of free land-owning, voting Black people who lived in what is now Central Park. It was called Seneca Village. 
hundreds of black families lived there because back in the this you know back in the long ago in the before times in the long long ago the white people who initially who who owned I say that very loosely because we know that all of this land was taken from somebody else but the white people who owned kind of at that point what was upper Manhattan because remember most of Manhattan in the 1850s was located basically below 14th Street um, really below Canal Street so they owned this Manhattan estate that was basically the country, which was, it was literally farmland. And the, this white family decided that they would sell the farmland to undesirables, which included Black people and quite a few Irish people. And so an entire community sprung up basically on what is now the west side of Central Park, kind of above, uh, you know, above the 70s. Um, um, where like if Broadway went straight through the park, kind of west of where Broadway would be above the 70s, there was this whole village of Black people who owned property. Remember, in the 1850s, there was no, there was no 15th Amendment. So there was no guarantee of suffrage for Black people. But New York State had a rule that if you were Black and you owned at least, I think it was $200 worth of property, you could vote. Seneca Village was one of the only places in New York where you where you could be a black person and own property because that was the only, one of the only places that white people would sell you property. So Seneca Village had a large percentage of the entire black voting power in New York City at the time. And they took it from them. They just they just took the land from them to make Central Park. So this is an example from the 1850s, but you say all of the tricks that would be deployed against black communities in the 20th century were used against the people of Seneca Village in the 1850s. Tell us about these tricks. Yeah, so what the first thing they do is they say that they, they basically say that the property is condemned, that it's that it's swampland or, 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 or whatever, that it's, um, that it's not economically productive property and it's dangerous property. They use this to kind of drive down the price that the government will eventually have to pay under the Fifth Amendment's just compensation um, laws. That also kind of creates public sentiment that this property is not valuable to the property owners, that it's much more valuable for whatever the public use they are, they are selling that week. I brought up in the book that the Central Park plan was not the only plan for a park in Manhattan. There was another plan where they would have taken Jones Wood. Jones Wood is a, is a place on the kind of Upper East Side, kind of in the 60s on the East Side on the water. It wasn't going to be as big as Central Park, but it was going to be this kind of big green space. Only a few families lived there, as opposed to the hundreds of families that lived in Seneca Village, but they were rich white families. They were the Joneses. They were wealthy white people, which means, like everybody else, they lived below 14th Street. But, you know, Joneswood was their country estate. The government went to take their property. The, the, the Joneses sued New York State, and they won. They won a lawsuit that prevented New York State from taking their property. So then New York State went and took, sorry, New York City then went and took um, the property of Black people, who also sued, but, oh, the Black people lost. And... Now we have Central Park. Do you have any suggestions about what the state could do now to pay the black owners of Seneca Village what their land was actually worth? One of the nice things about owning property is that we have we have records of that, right? We know, we know who they were. We know their names. We can go find their descendants. And, you know, if you want to talk about just compensation, 
they were paid. Uh, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, and I wrote it down so I wouldn't have to remember them on the plot. But <laughs> so I'm not going to quote the numbers to you, right? But you know, they they, they got a couple hundred dollars profit from you know when they bought the property to what the uh, 1857 authorities paid them um, for the property when they took it. But that property, you know, and you think about the 70s on Central Park West, that's pretty expensive land just at the moment. <laughs> and I bet that if we went and we found all of the descendants and gave them what their property is really worth, that, that would go a long way to ameliorating the historical hurt and the historical uh, uh, tragedy of the government destroying their town. I don't, I don't think we're going to do that, but like that would be, oh, I believe the word would be, that would be a good way to repay, perhaps a reparation um, of, <laughs> of the harm that was caused. Excellent. So eminent domain, you say, is one example of how our constitution is what you gently uh, term an imperfect work that needs to be reimagined. What's your larger argument here about achieving justice inequality for all with the constitution we have. Right. So look, if we're going to stick with this constitution, which there's going to be a whole ar another argument about maybe we shouldn't, but if we're going to stick with this constitution, then we need to interpret it in a way that for that, that puts at the forefront, the issues of justice, fairness, and equality. The constitution was written by slavers and colonists and people willing to make deals with slavers and, colon and, and, and colonists. It's not a great document. I mean, it's just, it's just straight up. It's not very, it literally has not been all that successful if you consider the fact that we had to get into a fighting hot war over it. Yes, less than a hundred years after it was ratified. Like there, there are other ways to think about, you know, perfect documents and our constitution would not meet that standard, right? So if we're gonna stick with it, at the very least, we must take the amendments that allegedly fixed it, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendments, and I would add the 19th Amendment, 13th Amendment outlawed slavery, the 14th Amendment call for equal protection, the 15th Amendment um, gave voting rights universal suffrage to men, and the 19th Amendment eventually gave universal suffrage to women. Those four amendments together become the most important parts of the Constitution if we're going to live in a pluralistic society. And so my fix for it is that everything that we do has to be strained through a lens and pass under under the 13th, 14th, 15th, and 19th Amendments. And if it doesn't, then it cannot be legitimate. And I would kind of start there as the baseline. I, you could call, I would call myself a 14th Amendment ideologist. Right. Like that, that, that's a thing. Why can't that be a thing? I would make the, the 14th Amendment is is the thing that makes all of the other amendments legitimate. Equal protection of the laws. It's a must. You can't have a free society without equal protection of laws. You can't have a free society without universal suffrage. And if you're doing things in your society, Republicans in Georgia, that that, that take away from universal suffrage, or equal protection, then that society is not legitimate. And that shouldn't be a that really shouldn't be a controversial position. Ellie Mistal, he wrote about the use and abuse of eminent domain for The Nation magazine. You can read that online at thenation.com. His new book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution is out now. Kirkus Reviews called it a reading of the Constitution that all social justice advocates should study. And Matt Levine of Bloomberg Opinion called it brisk and brutal, 
full of both laugh out loud lines and righteous fury. I agree. Thank you, Ellie. This was great. Thank you, John. I spoke with Ellie Mistal about his book, Allow Me to Retort, in March. The Mexican Revolution of 1910. That's the one with the slogan, Tierra y Libertad, Land and Liberty. The one where Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata led the fight to overthrow Porfirio Diaz, who had invited investors from the United States to buy millions of acres of Mexican land and take control of Mexican railroads, oil, and mining. That revolution was sparked by a band of migrant rebels from the United States, the Magonistas, led by a brilliant radical named Ricardo Flores Magón. Now that story has been told by historian Kelly Little Hernandez. She holds the Thomas E. Lifka Endowed Chair in History at UCLA, where she is director of the Ralph J. Bunch Center for African American Studies. She's a leader in the fight against mass incarceration and author of the award-winning books Migra and City of Inmates. She's also the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award. Her new book on race, empire, and revolution in the borderlands has the wonderful title, Bad Mexicans. Kelly Little Hernandez, welcome back. Thank you for having me on, John. Well, everyone knows something about Pancho Villa and Zapata. I didn't know anything about the Magonistas until I read your book, Who Was Ricardo Flores Magón? And how did he become the target of a joint U.S.-Mexico counterinsurgency campaign in 1910? So Ricardo Flores Magón was a journalist in Mexico, and he was part of a small group of journalists at the turn of the 20th century who were challenging the dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz, and they largely were working out of Mexico City. And after Porfirio Diaz had attempted several times to suppress their, their newspaper, Renacion, and put them in jail and in prison and smashed up their printing presses and actually issued a gag order prohibiting any newspaper in Mexico from publishing their words or articles, the gag orders issued in 1903, this group of journalists, dissident journalists, crossed the border into the United States, into Laredo, Texas in particular, to relaunch their newspaper, Regeneración, and hopefully organize a revolution against the dictator back in Mexico. And so what this book does, it tells the story of how they rebuilt their social movement on the U.S. side of the border and the efforts of the Mexican government and the United States government working together to suppress their social movement and to stop them from inciting a revolution. Now, why would the United States government get involved? Well, the United States government, um, through really significant U.S. investors, think about the Guggenheims and the Rockefellers, all the major names of the robber baron era, they had made major investments in Diaz's Mexico. As you had said, bought up millions of acres of land and come to dominate key industries from railroads to oil to mining. And they wanted to protect those investments. And Diaz had always been the one to protect those investments. So they wanted to protect Diaz. And so it's the United States government and the Mexican government working together to try to suppress a social movement led by journalists, but that's joined by ordinary people, cotton pickers and miners, migrant workers, and whatnot. Let's talk about Mexicans in the United States in 1910. 
as historians, we remember the Mexican War of 1846 to 48 when the United States conquered a huge swath from Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California, and a huge population of Mexicans were now inside the borders of the United States. So we're talking about 50 years after that when the Southwest has a large population of people who originally lived in Mexico. Certainly. So there's the population of, of Mexicans and indigenous persons and um, communities that were living on the land base that um, had been claimed by Mexico, but was seized by the United States after the U.S.-Mexico War. And then when you have the integration of the U.S. and Mexican economies that begins to happen really in the 1880s with the completion of a transcontinental railroad running north and south between the United States and, and central Mexico, um, then you also see the rise of mass labor migration from Mexico to the United States. And that's really happening at the turn of the 20th century. About you know, 100,000 Mexicans are migrating in the early years of the 20th century to come up to jobs in the United States. And they're coming because foreign investors and, and major Mexican elites are displacing indigenous and rural communities by buying up and privatizing land across Mexico. Those displaced um, workers, you know, they go to look for jobs in towns on haciendas and on the railroads. And by the early 20th century, they're beginning to migrate north into the United States in search of work. 1910, there's also a socialist movement in the United States concerned about a lot of the same issues of exploitation and democracy that the Magonistas are concerned about in Mexico. Tell us about socialism in the United States and the Magonistas' relationship with the Anglo-American and European socialists of the United States. When the Ricardo Flores Magón and his friends and journalists and the social movement begin to rebuild their community here in the United States, and that's happening between 1904 and 1910, they come into contact with some of the leading radical voices in the United States. Think Emma Goldman having conversations with Ricardo Flores Magón in St. Louis was a hotbed of labor organizing and socialist politics. They're certainly influencing one another's thoughts and minds. And Emma Goldman, of course, is one of the great anarcho-feminists of the early 20th century. And Ricardo goes on to become an anarcho-feminist as well. He stands against marriage as a form of slavery. Um, and so they're talking to each other, they're influencing each other, they're figuring out that there are transcontinental, international relationships among workers and organizers that if the Rockefellers and the Guggenheims and others are um, playing an anti-labor role in the United States and they're gaining a lot of their capital and their profit and their power out of their investments in Mexico, that they have a shared goal, right, of challenging the power of these elites, which has extended across borders. And so um, Anglo-American progressives and radicals, especially members of the Socialist Party, by the 1910 had become strong supporters of the Magonistas. And they do a couple of things in particular. They help the Magonistas reach a broader audience by publishing um, books and articles in English in major progressive newspapers about the conditions of life and labor in Mexico. That's really important because the mainstream progressive Anglo-American population at the time, the early 20th century, had a vision of Porfirio Diaz as being a great reformer, right? He had brought stability to Mexico. 
and they didn't know much about the labor conditions in Mexico. And the Magonistas, through their partnerships with Anglo-American radicals, helped to change that narrative in the United States, which makes it more uncomfortable for the United States government to support the Diaz administration and try to suppress the Magonistas. So you say this group of Mexican radicals and revolutionaries that had created a new base in Laredo sparked what became revolution against Diaz in Mexico. How exactly did they do that? So they cross into Laredo, Texas in January of 1904. And their first goal is to relaunch their newspaper, Renaracion. But within days of arriving in Laredo, they notice that they're being followed everywhere. And they knew that that was Diaz's spies. So they move to San Antonio and then St. Louis, where they are able to relaunch their newspaper. They establish a political party, the PLM, the Partido Liberal Mexicano. And they also begin to establish cells or focos across the United States that are both sub subscribers to the newspaper or members of the PLM, but also they're beginning to gather arms to ready themselves for an armed assault in Mexico. And there's a labor strike at a, a mine in northern Mexico, in Cananea, Sonora, Mexico, in June of 1906. And it's that labor strike which turns deadly against uh, the Mexican workers who are striking against an Anglo-American mine operator in Mexico that inspires the, the PLM to call for an all-out armed revolution in Mexico within one year's time. So between 1906, it's really after that uprising and when they issue a manifesto, right, a program to the nation saying this armed uprising is not just about unseating Porfirio Diaz, but it's also about protecting labor rights for Mexican workers, about returning land to indigenous and rural communities that have been displaced through the Diaz regime, about ending child labor, about ending debt servitude, about protecting democracy, about this social and economic revolution. Well, the United States looks at that and says, oh no. <laughs> and they get really busy. The U.S. Marshals, Department of War, the Attorney General, the Post Office, everybody gets involved, all hands on deck to do whatever they can to stop the PLM from organizing this revolution in Mexico. And you say that the Magonistas not only changed the course of history in Mexico, they opened a new chapter in the history of policing in the United States. Tell us a little more about that. The PLM is able to um, launch four armed raids into Mexico, one in September of 1906 and three in June of 1908. And it's immediately following the raids of June of 1908, which are the most lethal and stunning and damaging for the Diaz administration that the United States president, Theodore Roosevelt, along with the U.S. Attorney General at the time, Charles Bonaparte, they establish a new police force to be able to enforce federal law. What's the name of this police force? Police force is the one and only, at that time, Bureau of Investigation, which goes on to become the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So one of the really important parts about the Magonista story and how it relates to U.S. history is that the FBI, which goes on to become a counterinsurgency superforce throughout the 20th and 21st centuries, um, really cuts its teeth. One of its very first big cases was chasing down members of the PLM and doing everything they could to suppress the outbreak of the 1910 Mexican Revolution. And then there's a huge and horrifying postscript to your story. El Plan de San Diego, 
an uprising in South Texas in 1915. You call it one of the largest and deadliest uprisings against white settler supremacy in U.S. history. I never heard about this. Tell us about it. Yeah, there's so much in this book um, that many people won't have heard much about. But I must say that there are many scholars who've been writing on these issues for quite some time, and I, I lean on their work. And the goal of this book is to haul that knowledge out of the academy and to bring it to a broader public. So Plan de San Diego, as you said, is um, an uprising that happens in South Texas in the summer of 1915. And this is right in the middle of the Mexican Revolution. And a group of Mexican nationals and Mexican-Americans get together and they concoct a plan that if they have already removed Diaz from power in Mexico and are on their way to gaining economic and a political revolution in Mexico, why should that not transcend borders as well? So they look north to Texas and to the United States. They form an army for all races and peoples. They recruit um, Black folks, Asian folks, and others to um, move across South Texas to assassinate any white male 16 or older and to seize land. And that the first lands seized by this army of liberation for the people would go to African-Americans as a sanctuary from white supremacy. And the next set of lands would go to indigenous peoples as a sanctuary from settler supremacy. Wow. It's an incredible vision and then would go to Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, but they wanted to really unlock the land from white settler supremacy. And so they begin their uprising in the summer of 1915 in South Texas, ripping up railroad tracks, yes, committing assassinations and more. And the response is extraordinary of the vigilantes, the U.S. Marshals, Department of War begin to summarily lynch and kill an uncounted number of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans across the region. Historians and some folks have estimated that anywhere between 300 and perhaps as high as 5,000 Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were murdered in retaliation for Oplan de San Diego. And so you have two things that happened in the summer of 1915 and, and heading into 1916. Is one, one of the most significant uprisings against white settler supremacy in U.S. history. This army of all non-white peoples coming together and you also have one of the deadliest suppression campaigns of that kind of uprising in U.S. history. And here's the shocking thing. that almost nobody knows it happened. Um, this is a, a history, Latinx history general, in general, Mexican-American history in particular, um, that has not gotten enough coverage in the canon of the American story. And so this book about this relatively small group of Mexican migrants who had a particular dream of the early 20th century. My hope is that as part of a broader program and campaign to kick open the doors of U.S. history, to see so many of the stories we hadn't seen before, to think about how they transform our understanding of who we are uh, as a people. And one last thing, your title, Bad Mexicans, where does that come from? Bad Mexicans is a term that the dictator and his regime in Mexico used to describe the dissidents, the rebels, the insurgents. And so he would call Ricardo Flores Magón and his the members of his social movement bad Mexicans. And they were bad Mexicans, malos mexicanos, 
for challenging his regime. Now, of course, right? I knew the moment I knew I was going to write this book was the moment that we had another autocrat here in the United States, President Donald Trump, who had declared Mexican migrants to be bad hombres. And I wanted to provide a history as to what he was stirring up when he was using that kind of rhetoric targeting Mexican migrants, that there had been another autocrat at another time who had declared Mexicans seeking a better life for themselves and their families as malos mexicanos. And so this is part of the shared story of um, the freedom dreams of Mexico's dispossessed and the attempts of various autocrats across time to suppress their, their social movements. Kelly Little Hernandez, her new book on race, empire, and revolution in the borderlands during and after Mexico's 1910 revolution has the wonderful title, Bad Mexicans. Kelly, thanks for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. We spoke with Kelly Little Hernandez about her book, Bad Mexicans, in May. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.